0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Today, we are really thrilled to welcome Tyler Burns, the co-host of the podcast, Pass the Mic. He's also a pastor um, at New Dimensions Christian Center and the president of The Witness. He's doing a lot of things, y'all. So, um, we are here to discuss massage noir and also the ways that black men and black women can be better allies. So, welcome, Tyler. Thanks for coming on the show with us. Oh, it's
1: my honor. It's one of my favorite podcasts. So, thank y'all for having
0: me. Oh, that's so dope. That's really great to hear. Yay. Um, we're really excited that you're here with us today. Um, And before we jump into the meat of the conversation, um, I thought we'd play a little game just to see how well um, you're up on the Black women in pop culture
1: and history. Okay, okay, okay.
0: (laughs) I'm so excited about this. First of all, I just want to say that Catherine is the mastermind of all of this, okay? so
2: um, I'm
1: bad at trivia. Like, I'm really bad at trivia. My hands get sweaty. I just, you know, it's a lot, so.
2: Tyler, I have confidence in you that you are going to just, like, knock this out of the park.
0: (laughs) All right, here we go. No pressure. No pressure. Here's here's the first one. I co-owned a newspaper in Memphis where I was forced to flee because of my documenting lynchings um, that challenged the old threadbare lie that Negro men rape white women. I wrote two books on lynching, The Red Record and Southern Horrors.
1: Oh, that's Ida B. Wells Barnett. Yeah, It's one of my my heroes, of course.
2: (laughs) <laughs> See, I told you. I told you. I got you. Okay. The next one is so before Rihanna, I was a Black beauty pioneer, and before Oprah and Sheila Crump Johnson and Rosalind Brewer, I was the first female and first Black woman to be a self-made millionaire. Octavia Spencer played me in a Netflix series that was partially produced by LeBron James.
1: Madam C.J. Yay. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Absolutely. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Two for See? two. Two for two. I'm, I'm praying. Yeah, I'm praying.
0: Partner. You know, I'm trying to... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the next one is I was born to a family of sharecroppers in Texas, but ended up flying high above the fields as the first black woman to hold one of these. I was famous for doing the loop the loops and for making the shape of an eight and mystery woman number one performed by my funeral service. Hmm. I was born into a family of sharecroppers in Texas, but ended up flying high above the fields as the first black woman to hold one of these. I was famous for doing the loop the loops and making the shape of an eight and mystery woman number one performed by my funeral service.
1: I think y'all got me on this one. I think y'all got me on this one.
2: Okay. And I feel
1: like it's going to be very obvious once I hear it, but I I feel like I got me.
2: Okay, Bessie Coleman, the first black woman to hold a pilot's license. (laughs) I learned was I was doing my research for to test you. I did not know that Idb Wells gave her eulogy. So, fun fact for you guys. Wow. Oh, hey, that's great. I didn't know that either. Um. (sighs) Okay. Next one. I'm from Houston, Texas. My younger sister always keeps me on my toes. I inspired a generation of black women to consider a career in the law because of my work on this famous NBC sitcom.
1: Famous NBC sitcom.
2: A lawyer, black female lawyer, played a black female lawyer. Played a black female lawyer.
1: Okay, so this is an actress who played a black female lawyer on an NBC sitcom.
2: Yes, and has a famous younger sister who keeps her on her toes. Famous younger
1: sister. Ooh, I think I can get this one. Okay, hold up, hold up. Read it again. Read it again. Okay.
2: I'm from Houston, Texas. My younger sister is famous, and she always keeps me on my toes. I inspired a generation of black women to consider a career in the law because of my work on a famous NBC sitcom.
1: Hmm. You might have to tell me this one, too.
2: Okay, can you guess the lawyer? Famous NBC sitcom, black woman in the 1980s.
1: Oh, wait, 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 wait. Hold up. Famous NBC last sitcom. Okay, so you are talking about Felicia Rashad? Is this? Yes. Is this, yes okay, yes. all right. So this the is. sitcom was throwing me off, and then we said the '80s. I was like, okay, bet, yeah. Yes, that makes
2: sense. Yes. Okay. It is Felicia Rashad, Felicia Rashad, and her famous little sister Debbie Allen. Okay, Faith, this is yours.
0: All right, I am one of sixteen um, Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony win- winners. I have played a psychic, a coach for the New York Knicks. The spunky best friend of a woman looking to recover her groove, and the showgirl turned nun. I get paid a bag to moderate conversations between a comic, a lawyer, and a senator's daughter.
1: Is that Whoopi? Whoopi Gober?
2: Yes. Okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The showgirl okay. turned nun. Is the,
2: <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. Like, yeah. Okay. There we go. Was, yeah. Okay. This is the last one. Um, so you're doing good. You've only missed one so far. Um, this one should be. I think. We're going to go out on high note. I have confidence in you. Um, I have a Peabody Award. I am the first Black woman to head headline Coachella. And I am now the Recording Academy's most honored singer, male or female. Beyonce. Yay!
1: Of course, of course. I'm a big Beyonce. I'm a Beyonce fan. I'm a Beyonce yes. fan. Yes, okay. Which, yes. okay,
2: I feel like I knew that about you. And I feel like I have to ask you, favorite Beyonce album. There is no wrong answer, but there is a right answer.
1: <laughs> oh, okay. So you said favorite, not best
2: best best oh
1: oh, best i think it's the same for me it's it's four so
2: really yeah yeah, mm -hmm.
1: but i'm partial to love on top that's my favorite beyonce song i mean i
2: love that song i love that song too it's so good i would say lemonade um because i'm partial to all night but four is is a really four is a really good underrated very solid beyonce album so like like i'm fine with that um okay so <laughs> i'll let but you have if you, that if one. you
1: start if you start with love on top into party into was it countdown i feel like yeah or something else that's a that's an album album i, mean, I was listening and, like oh it's an album for real
2: and i think that's when she made her turn really to caring a lot about like precision visuals and i mm-hmm. just the videos for the album no i mean for you know I'll give you that. Uh, Under- I feel the
1: judgment. I feel the judgment. It's okay. No, I judgment. love lemonade. It's amazing.
2: It's no, no. There is no, there is, <laughs> I will say there's no judgment. If my sister and my mom listen to this, they will probably say that Four is their favorite. Um, Schooling Life is like the Freeman Girl anthem. So oh, no, okay. four, four is totally fine. Four is um, Yeah. So, well, thank you for indulging us. I thought. I loved it. That was fun. Yes. I know. I love, you know, we got to do a little pop culture trivia every now and then. Um, so, pivoting, um, I thought we could talk about as we kind of get into this conversation about how Black women and Black men can be better allies, and talking a little bit about um, That we could talk a little bit about your childhood and the role of Black women in your life growing up. Um, I asked because I grew up in a fairly conservative, you know, home, but. My mom had pretty conservative views on gender, but also was this like, kept her maiden name, was an accountant, you know. And so those kinds of, I think oftentimes, um, sort of the Black Christian narrative of gender roles doesn't always fit sort of the larger Christian culture. And so I was just curious um, about your experience growing up.
1: That's a great question. I think um, there's obviously a duality with it because there's one side where I'm being educated in a private white independent fundamental baptist christian school environment which is hyper complementarian and very overtly oppressive uh to women as obvious to see right who could hold certain positions who could speak who could teach you know things of that nature exercise spiritual authority who could teach the bible all those things and then on the flip side i'm actually you know in a pastor's home of a pentecostal preacher you know so My upbringing, my discipleship is actually in a very egalitarian context where women could hold authority and preach and teach and do all that. Over time, though, what I recognized is that there were more similarities than differences. Um, And while there are things that I absolutely love about my church environment, I'm I'm also well aware that we must critique it and we must also interrogate some of the ways in which it has been harmful to people and hurt people. And what I saw was that there was a public-facing sense of uh, approval of women, and you know, like you'll take for example my mother, right, who operated in preaching and teaching gifts, but then in private, all the structures kind of boxed women out and did not mm-hmm. give them the opportunity to set the agenda yeah. mm-hmm. and the spiritual direction and the spiritual yeah. formation for the entirety of the body outside of just women. And so there were egalitarian ideas and aspirations, but it was very complementarian in its execution. So it was like very...
2: Oh, yeah.
1: And so, yeah, so I, I think it, what, what it taught me, you know, growing up was that claiming a certain theological position and claiming a certain ideal doesn't mean you're actually living that out. And I think what my, what my mom really helped me to see over time, especially as I started to dibble-dabble into reform theology and start to be in those spaces is that the the norms of what people call, you know, biblical womanhood do not apply and don't really encapsulate black women. And so mm-hmm. when, you, when you when you use <laughs> <Yeah>. phrases like <laughs> biblical womanhood, um, you know, that's a very charged phrase that has cultural implications as well that they most people who use that phrase do not consider when they when they use it. Uh, so there was there were those dualities growing up and then there was the reformed awakening of, you know, and this doesn't really encapsulate the women who are in my life and why mm-hmm. is that and why aren't there many here um, that really shaped my view of of where I land now on gender
0: yeah that's, that's awesome. so good and I can relate to a lot of like you know what you're saying and especially when you talk about like biblical womanhood that's a whole other side conversation but I just always remember and feeling like this I this is a world that just does yes. not apply to me yeah. um, so for you though when did you become aware that you might have a blind spot when it comes to the ways that black women and men move through the world differently, and not just in like familial roles, um, but in the wider wider world at large? Um, I know like in the podcast you recently did um, for Pass the Mic with Jamar, you talked a little bit about this, and you mentioned noticing how black women were experiencing these different places that you were leaving, these different evangelical spaces, and so um, specifically white ones. And so, so, could you, you know, elaborate a little bit more on those differences that you saw, and you know, the things that were like brought to your attention by other people?
1: Hmm. Wow. Great question. <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting because a lot of people talk about resources and knowledge and books and 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 things of that nature, famous famous figures. But all of my awakenings have come in the context of relationships and friendships that I have and one of the stories that really made me aware of this as I was making a turn theologically was uh, involved my sister. Now, my sister is, I think, um, 11 years younger than me. So I'm the oldest by a lot. And then there's my brother, who's nine years younger than me. And then my um, my sister, who's like, well, he's like 10 years younger than me. And my sister's 11 plus years younger than me. And so we all went to the same school, but I experienced you know, that much earlier than them. So we were all involved in student leadership at young ages and were kind of elected to student offices in middle school, high school, what have you. And so when I was in my junior year, I had been chaplain for, you know, ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade. And then they, they, a group of guys, I didn't even pick up on this at the time group of guys came to me and said, Hey, we want you to run for senior class president and we'll get behind you. We'll support you. Now, mind you, All the people who have been president from ninth through 11th grade were women, were young women. And so they're like, man, we want to get behind you, man. We feel like you'd be a great leader. And I didn't put the two and two together. Oh, y'all don't want to be led by a woman. So Mm -hmm. I just didn't put two and two together. So I got got elected and it didn't click till later. Like, man, they were trying to, they didn't want to be under young women who are leaders. And so fast forward, my sister is in the same position. Mm -hmm. And so now she's the young woman who's a leader at the school. And then come up on the senior class election, a young man supplants her and actually ends up winning the election because people got behind him, even though he didn't have any leadership experience, hadn't wow. been on student leadership. Mm-hmm. And I was going off. I was like, it's so wrong and all this. And my sister, she stopped me. She said, yeah, but isn't that what you did? <laughs> oh, wow. Well, and I I'm mean... like, you loud right now, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and and what, what it really showed me, though, is the propensity of, of us as men to to decry things in others that we will not challenge in ourselves. Mm, that's a word. And yeah. it shows in in me the ways in which we we can functionally intellectually theologically know something is wrong in our relationships with our sisters and and fail to to take the the requisite action and sacrifice the requisite idols mm. in order mm. for them to flourish in our spaces. And so it's just like it was a it was a wake-up call to me. So similarly all of my moments of awakening and my realizations and i i hope this is understood i'm i'm i have a long way to go right i have a yeah. long way to go but all of them have come in the context of relationships um mm-hmm. when there was a and i think they would be okay yeah i'll tell the story so we did an episode with Truth table yeah um a few years back called gender apartheid and it you know set the reformed world on fire apparently and people were coming at us and but they were mainly attacking Truth Table. They were attacking us too, but they were mainly attacking TT. And I'll never forget, um, I was on a trip when all this was breaking out. And the morning after the whole thing broke out, Akemini texts me. And Akemi's one of my best friends. And so she texts me. She was like, where are y'all at? Because why is it that it feels like we're carrying the heavy lifting of mm-hmm. speaking out in this wow. regard? I don't feel like y'all are anywhere, but y'all are on the episode. So why haven't you said anything? <laughs> why haven't you come to our defense? Why aren't you taking And it was it was challenging, but it was healthy and it was what I needed to hear. And so I think sometimes again we can we can do an episode on gender apartheid. We can do an episode on misogynoir, but not live that out in private. And I think that's something that has been a realization for me um that my sisters and my friends have constantly um and obviously my wife and and my mother and my sister have constantly brought to my attention. But in Leave Loud, I think, you know, it is striking how Black men seem to have a, a wider safety net, social safety net, whenever they leave a situation. And it's, it's, it's surprising how, when we look at Black women who are often far more qualified, far more capable, have far more requisite experience in these, in these areas, do not have the same landing place that Black men do when they leave. So it's easy for us to leave, right? Mm -hmm. We can make a big deal and be like, oh, we out. Because we know in our minds, we have the confidence that we're going to have a place to go. But we often do not talk about that in the context of churches and church spaces and denominations where Black women have to weigh much more um, substantive factors that we don't. And also dealing with the layer of of sexism along with racism as well, misogynoir. So yeah, I think that's definitely the case in in something like Leave Loud. Easy for us to say often, you know.
2: Yeah. No, I appreciate your honesty. And I think, you know, part of the hope behind this episode is that we're all on a journey and some of us are in different spaces, but we're all learning and growing. I was really struck by, yeah, that black men have a place to go because, I mean, the reality is, and, you know, even if you leave white evangelical context, if you're a black man, you can become pastor of a black church. And a lot of black churches um, still tend to, regardless of what they articulate, are functionally um, complementarian. And so it's very hard for Mm -hmm. women even women with theological training, to find um, jobs. So um, as on pastoral staff or even just like directors or leaders of ministry. So, so yeah, I, that's a really important point. Um, and so and I just, also
1: I will say, uh, not to cut you off, I'm sorry, no, no, but no, also I, I will say to that point, and I think it's, you know, an uncomfortable truth, but it's a truth. So I'm just going to say just Yeah, say no, it. tell it. You know, nepotism in black churches <laughs> oh. is like, it's a huge thing and it, and it directly affects men black men to their sons now i'm in that situation so i'll call out myself (laughs) i'll call out the whole situation so i i but i think it's important to name that right yeah that man it it is an easy it's an easy pathway for a lot of these black pastor's kids who are in white evangelical spaces or reform spaces to return home because it's seen as the you know the prodigal son coming back home and you know let's kill the fatty calf and and you know get out the robe and the ring and the sandals and and it's like well i, I don't think the the situation is the same for our sisters
2: yeah. and we
1: benefit from that and there's a quick runway and and i can name i can name people who would who would completely agree with me who are brothers who is like we left we came back and it was like Meteoric. Yeah. In a heartbeat. And we don't even think, oh, you know what? How are we benefiting from the fact that the church has created a narrative around the sons? Mm.
2: Mm. <laughs>
1: and failed to write the same story for the daughters.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. That's I had deep. a yeah, no, I had a male pastoral mentor tell me. Um, once that he had to change how he mentored, that he took his, like, spiritual sons to play golf a lot and, like, cigars and, you know, and his daughters in the ministry were like, how are you investing the same energy and time in us because we don't play golf and we don't want to smoke cigars or whatever. And he was like, it just never occurred to me. I thought I was a good mentor to them because I affirm women in ministry. And, you know, he's he is a good mentor. Like, this is no shade to him. But I think those kinds of, like, smaller... Um, to your point, things we don't think about in terms of creating a runway or pathway for um, for daughters as well. Um, so for those who don't know, we probably should have said this at the beginning, but it's fine, um, to define misogynoir. Um, so it's a specific type of misogyny directed towards Black women. Um, it was a term created by Professor Moya Bailey, and it's defined as a specific hatred, dislike, distrust, or prejudice directed towards Black women. So... I wanted to ask you, um, why is it important to have the conversation? Um, If we talk about sort of racial reconciliation, when we talk about racial justice, oftentimes you see, specifically in church spaces, that conversation is led by Black men and white men, maybe there's a white woman involved. It is very common to have this conversation and not include the voices of black women. Um, And so I wanted to ask you as someone who's been very, I think very intentional at The Witness about sort of course correcting, um, why is it important to have black women in the conversation about racial reconciliation
1: and racial justice? Hmm, Yeah. You know, I wanna commend Dr. Shaniqua Walker-Barnes on her work. Um, I bring the voices of my people Which really tackles this in long form. And I wanna commend that to, you know, any any men who may be listening, (laughs) uh, you know, because I shared this episode or because, you know, it was advertised. I wanna every man should read that who's doing work in reconciliation, racial reconciliation, racial justice. Because I think what we tend to do in these settings is we tend to be black we claim to be for black Christians and black centered, but we have white leadership, white patriarchal leadership models. And so what we really look at is we allow black men to be formed in the image of a white male leader, archetype white male leader. And it is important for us to not just include the voices of women, black women, but center the voices of black women, because it, it breaks the presuppositions that the white evangelical patriarchal model superimposes on all of our leadership. So the vast majority of leadership books and the vast majority of nonprofit leaders will be white men or white Christian men or white evangelical men. And so you get this reinforcing that we're starting to create this leadership model that says if you're going to lead, you have to look like, be like, talk like this archetype, white man. Um and Whenever we fail to center yeah. black women in the conversation around reconciliation and justice, number one, we ignore history. And we ignore that the vast majority of movements, um, all of the movements for freedom and, and justice in this, um, in this cultural context in, in America have been led and women have been carrying the weight of that even though they were not in the forefront, in the pulpit and in the, in the, um, the public places of celebrity that the men occupied and enjoyed. But beyond that, we are we are missing key elements of the discussion. We are missing key elements. We are missing central elements. You cannot talk about justice if black women are not at the center because how are we going to talk about justice without talking about gender? It's impossible. It's not real justice. It is actually, and, and this is what most of the models have been because I've been on these panels. What most of the models have been is um oh man do I really want to okay yeah so what most of the models I'm like trying to weigh in my head like do I really want to say this um, what most of the models have been are this white white man black man uh evangelical bromance where it's like oh justice is getting done because we got together oh this my brother and we were in each other's weddings and oh it's just so much reconciliation this is what heaven looks like And really, it's no, y'all are just friends because really and truly y'all gather around the fact that y'all both have power in church spaces. And how do we cultivate that power in a way that protects us rather than protects (laughs) our sisters and and allows them to flourish? So then that becomes the archetype for, for racial reconciliation and justice. And it's happened to me multiple times. Where I've just yeah. been in local you know, local conversations, they're like, oh, you with so such and such white pastor, and they hang out, and they go to breakfast, and they have this, and this is what reconciliation looks like. No, it's not. That's not reconciliation. That's friendship. That's bromance. Um, and that's us getting together in our clique, in our club, and pontificating <laughs> about what justice looks like in our heads, yeah. but not actually saying, what does it look like on the ground in lives? And I think Black women should be central to the conversation. So much so that if a black woman is not at the table mm-hmm. for that conversation, black men should get up and walk away.
2: Wow, yeah, mm. I love that.
0: That is so good. Black yeah. men should get up and walk away. I wish more black men would. Um, but oftentimes it's like what you're talking about, that that addiction to power, that proximity to power, that position um, that keeps a lot of black men there. And then it keeps us as Black women as sisters saying, where are y'all at? As we think about this, like, what are some of the, you know, specific ways that you promote female flourishing in your ministries? What are some of the, the words of challenge that you would offer to other Black men when it comes to seeing and supporting Black women?
1: Yeah. Yeah. You can't promote justice for black women if you care about white feelings. Wow. You can't do it. And so I think the mm. first thing that we have to develop the discipline of is ceasing to care what they think about us. Because there's always this there's always this confrontation whenever you talk about justice for black women in these cases and the flourishing of black women the centrality of the conversation. What are the white men gonna think? What are the what are the white folks gonna think? How are they going to react? And we have to we have to let that desire uh, really die in us. And if we do not, then we're never gonna actually stand in in true solidarity with our sisters. I think specifically for me, what I have tried to do and what I'm what I'm working on developing is the pathways that you discussed earlier for mentorship and what healthy mentorship looks like. And what healthy accountability looks like. So here's here's some unhealthy dynamics in a lot of black churches. The, the black pastor will have an accountability circle, will have elders, and there will be no women. So how does how does how does the church know the condition of a marriage or a family if there are no women in the accountability structure and circle? Like how does the how does the church actually know that the pastor is holistic in his theology if there are no women? at the table for theology how does how does the direction of the church become more inclusive and healthy for all participants if there are no women board members Mm -hmm. and if there are no trustees and if it's it's basic structures behind the scenes number one that talk about how we set up church as a conceptual idea in the first place even before we get to what happens in public and then secondarily i think you know I think it is so important for Black pastors to really have a hard conversation about preaching calendars, um, to have a hard conversation about what does it look like for us to include Black women and center Black women in spiritual formation, and not just on Mother's Day, you know, and International Women's Day, and you know, <laughs> Black women can preach anytime, you know, that's that's okay, you know, <laughs> if if that's your stance, yeah. like if that's your if that's your theological conviction, which it is mine. Um, so, what does it look like for yeah, us mm-hmm. to be extremely strategic why is it that we say we're egalitarian but when we look at pulpit time we allow black men number one to box out black women with how much pulpit time they have mic time they have and then never train and never equip and never and never create pathways so what you've done and this was a dynamic for us and i don't mind saying it's a dynamic for us you know we had a assistant pastor who was a former military guy and he would just be up there giving announcements for 20, 30 minutes. And he would just sit back and he'd just kind of be like, yo, that's, that's dope. But number one, I don't, I don't know anybody that wants to hear that. But then secondarily, oh why oh is it boy. that you have, so much, you have so much power and you, know, you, don't, you don't relinquish any of that power? So now anyone who walks into our church thinks we're male dominated, even though we're egalitarian. that mm. we have women on staff, women who are ordained pastors, women who are ordained ministers. Why do they not get the opportunity to lead in that same way that you do? It really gets into the way in which black churches talk about black women and treat black women. And I think there's some, and it really gets into the, and there's a lot to say about that, even at The Witness as well. Um, And I'll get to that here in a second, but it really gets into the way in which black churches, and I'm a pastor, so I speak from a pastoral perspective. The way we talk about black women from the pulpit has to change. Mm -hmm. And the way we... Here's how we typically do it. Especially famous black pastors in in multi-ethnic settings will always use the caricature and the comedy of black woman voice and stereotypes and to be a comedy element. And it makes people laugh at the expense of the black women in the room. So there's comedy on one side. On the other Mm -hmm. side, there's commodity. Because think about all the the proliferation of relationship series and um, books and all kinds of things that what they try to do is they try to tap into black women buying power in these, in these spaces and try to sell them this fantasy vision of what it should look like because we as men apparently know all that it's supposed to look like when it comes, to, and no, we don't. But so there's comedy and commodity. So then it becomes a, a audience growing scheme. <laughs> where, where we, we just talk about all these things all the time and relationships are important to talk about in a healthy way. But why are black men leading that conversation? And why are we leading that conversation in isolation? That's a problem to, to me. So I think those are two things that in black church dynamics that have to change um, beyond the obvious of reporting sexual assault and abuse, of standing up against domestic violence, um, of creating healthy pathways for women to lead, we have to do a lot more work in unpacking why every analogy that we use in regards to black women so dehumanizing and objectifying so yeah there's a lot there's a lot in that mm-hmm.
2: wow, no yeah, no that I think that's really um wise, and I will say even when we talk about black women people are getting married later and later. And so even when you do bring a black woman, like the thing that always frustrates me about only allowing a woman to preach on Mother's Day is like a lot of black women are not biological mothers maybe our spiritual mothers or that kind of Mm -hmm. thing and so then this sort of version of like she's only qualified to speak about this one sliver of female experience um, I think contributes to sort of the marginalization of of black women in these spaces Um, yeah so I agree
1: that's so good yeah and that's something that again if if black women aren't a part of setting the preaching calendar (laughs) then they're not gonna oh yeah Preach, preach for Mother's Day. Preach for International Women's Day. Do this randomly, you know. C- celebrate, celebrate VP Kamala Harris, you know. And it's like, well, well, we're not actually, we're not dignifying, yeah. and we're not allowing them to have the the space to flourish. What we're doing is we're we're using them as as tools to show that oh, well, we we have women in our church too that can preach, only on this day, you know. It just it's a lot that we're not thinking about. So I really appreciate you bringing that up.
2: Yeah, no. And even to me, sometimes the uh, celebrating Kamala Harris, I think in a lot of black churches, the Kamala Harrises are told, why aren't you married? Wow. <laughs> like, you know, why are you aspiring to be, you know, a U.S. senator, vice president? Like... You- who are you dating? Those are the questions that Kamala Harris's and most Black churches are being asked. They're not being asked about, you know, their, you know, larger vision of justice and flourishing and how God has called them to live out their callings and in other spaces. So, um, yeah, so I think I appreciate you kind of raising that, like, celebration of Kamala Harris, (laughs) Um, but then, like, functionally, we're not creating spaces for Kamala Harris types to flourish. It's also the fact that if you don't have children or
0: if you're not married, um, people make this assumption that you're not exactly. as much of a, a woman or you're not grown, you're not adult. And so it's it's very frustrating when you are in these spaces and people are looking at you as if your existence isn't valid because you don't have these stamps of what um, people think makes you an adult or makes you a woman.
1: Yeah, that is so, so good. The way Black Christians treat singleness is a is a big topic that needs to be discussed a lot more. Um, And it's to our shame we've created this hierarchy and also that just really unhealthy dynamic of how, you know, women can preach about anything, you know, they can teach about anything. Like it doesn't have to just be about, you know, Oh, teach us about this biblical character. Who's a woman, you know? Well, I mean, preach about anything. And we have to get to that place where that's allowed and also developed and also, you know, that ministry, the whole ministry model, okay. The whole ministry model has to change. Mm-hmm. Everything about the ministry model has to change. Is what I've seen in my brief tenure as lead pastor. Everything has to change. That it cannot be the same as it was. And I think another element of this, which we don't like to talk about, is how we train and disciple and minister to men.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: Everything, everything has to change. And people don't want to hear that. And it's like. No, it doesn't. And that's too much too soon. But why is it that that we can allow men to be unhealed and uh, not not get counseling, not be recommended to therapists and 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 not deal with old wounds and then traumatize their wives and be abusive in their speech and their language. And it's like
2: Yeah.
1: No, men's yeah. ministry hasn't to changed too. You know that, right? Yeah. Like Yeah. It's well, broken. Y'all, it's broken. Yeah.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, that's part of this conversation. Like, that's part of what it means to be an ally. And one way that men can be allies to black women is their own sort of self-healing and not making us the repository of all of that pain and suffering. Faith and I talked about on the last podcast episode of how, like, Black women are praised for being long suffering with their husbands or spouse or or partners um, that are just just put them through the ringer, And that that's, you know, you're a godly wife or a biblical wife or you're doing the right thing by just taking just taking it and taking it and taking it. So, yeah, I appreciate you calling attention to the men's ministry model probably needs to change, too.
1: Yeah, that is dangerous. That whole mentality is is dangerous. And I've seen it in in specific cases be the source of great pain and trauma and extremely unhealthy dynamics when you know as pastors we have to have the courage to tell you know the man there's no reason why she <laughs> should be married to, him. She needs to leave, you know <laughs> because you're not changing you know you're not changing you're you're creating an abusive environment you know toxic environment i know toxic is a funny word but you know abusive toxic environment that she can't flourish in so yeah
2: Yeah, so as we kind of wrap up our time, I want to be sensitive to the fact that there are probably some women listening who have been injured or hurt or feel pushed out or excluded and haven't been allowed to use their gifts, whether at work or even worse, in my opinion, in the church. So as a pastor, I was hoping that you might be able to offer them some words of hope and comfort um, if they're struggling in in these spaces.
1: Yeah. Hmm. So much pain. I think we have um, underestimated the church has done a very poor job of handling pain in general and being a space of a safe space of healing and hope. And, you know, I would say to those black women, you know, number one, you are valuable apart from your proximity and relationship to men or the church or anything. You are valuable in and of yourself and you're not the, the product of what you do. Um, you yourself are valuable, even if others cannot see that and even if others do not appreciate that. You know what? I would also say that the resilience and the level of determination that many of you show is admirable and laudable, but I pray for spaces where that resilience will not be necessary.
2: Mm, Yes.
1: I pray for spaces where that determination will not be necessary. I pray for relationships where... The long suffering will not be as necessary as it has been in the past. And I also pray that, you know, I, I sincerely hope that black women do not feel the pressure or the need um, to be our teachers. Mm. I, I hope that there would be, yeah, I think black women need to hear that they don't have to teach black men. Yeah. Yeah. And that it's okay to let black men to hear, for black men to hear, you need to do your work and you need to get healed and you need to prioritize this on your own. Um, And so I think sometimes we put that inherent pressure on women coming and fix our problems when we should be doing the work ourselves. So I hope that you hear you're valuable and you're important by yourself. I hope that you hear that your resilience and determination is laudable, but it shouldn't, shouldn't be necessary in many cases. And I also hope you hear from a black man as well that, you know, we repent and we lament for the ways in which we are complicit. And that will be a continual repentance. That's not just because we said it once. Mm, um, yes. But more needs to be said about the ways in which we are repenting and creating reparations for black women. And so if, if nobody says it to you, I'm sorry mm. for how we have been complicit. And, and I repent for how I've been complicit.
0: Wow, that's so good. And I like I hope that if you're listening, that that blessed you and really spoke to you. um, Because this is a conversation that we need to have. It's, it's one of many um, that I'm sure Catherine and I will have and continue to explore on the podcast, because we think it's so important. Um, But we hope that you allow those words to just rest with you um, and, you know, lead you on the path and process towards healing. So thank you so much, Tyler, for joining us. We're going to transition into our favorite segment <laughs> and yours. Um, since yeah. Tyler's going to participate with us this time, it's going to be go off, fam.
1: Um, so- I love it. I love it.
0: We are ready to go off, Catherine. Kick us off.
2: Yeah, so I'm gonna do a quick shout out to my Baylor Bears that won the men's basketball national championship. Um, for the women, Baylor's women's basketball team is awesome. They have won multiple times, but you know the men are catching up, so we're um, very happy about that. And then my real bless is Amanda Gorman and Regina King and Viola Davis. Yes. We have talked a lot about beauty standards and who gets to be on the cover of magazines and who gets to be celebrated. And this month, these beautiful sisters are covering magazines, and so I bless them. They look stunning. Please go find these magazine covers and see the ways in which what it looks like to light black faces properly um, and put them in fancy clothes. Um, We love it. I Yeah, that's my bless. Um, My mess is... Uh-oh. I'm going to talk about the Chloe Kardashian sort of removing of her edited photo thing. Speak, speak on it. But it's <laughs> – this is part of <laughs> our larger conversation. So Chloe, I think historically, culturally, has been sort of the favored Kardashian because she seems the most real. Recently, because of body dysmorphia, beauty standards that she herself and her family have helped create um, – is known to apply a lot of filters, a lot of edits to her body um, and and her pictures on Instagram. Well, over the weekend, she was hanging out with her grandmother. Her grandmother posted a photo that is beautiful because she looks like a normal person. And the Kardashian machine sort of freaked out, threatened to sue people, had the photo removed. Um, And then sort of Chloe sort of said, you know, well, it's my photo. I'm allowed to have it removed. People pick on me about my body. And I want photos that portray me the way my I know my body actually looks. But here's the thing,
1: mm-hmm.
2: that's not the way her body actually looks. <laughs> so, and it's frustrating to me for her to sort of decry this sort of like um, scrutiny that she herself has received without acknowledging her own complicity and her own work in constructing the system where women are subjected to unrealistic standards. And I think this generally, I think this could apply to multiple conversations across the board with lots of different women like we need to do some sort of self-examination in the ways in which we contribute to these systems of oppression and Mm. can't be mad when we're crushed in a system that we help hold up so yeah so my mess is i feel bad you know i don't like for people to be picked on i don't like for her to be harassed i you know it was pointed out that she has made comments about jordan wood's bodies so you know Part of accountability and asking for change is acknowledging the ways in which you've been complicit in in the system. So that's my go off and my bless. Wow, a,
1: <laughs> a true a true go off. I love it.
2: Say
0: that. All right. Well, Tyler, it's your turn.
1: All right, yo, um, yeah. So so <laughs> there's a lot of things that I could bless uh, in this week, but the one I'm actually going to bless is obviously everybody you know knows. Recently, it was Easter and. One of my favorite times is actually Good Friday because there's this long-held black church tradition that on Good Friday you will have what they call a seven-saying service. And so it's a collection of seven preachers that will get up and they'll preach one of the sayings um, of Jesus on the cross, one of the seven last sayings. And this year it seemed like the stars aligned and there were more seven-saying services, especially virtually, than there have ever been that I've seen. And I just want to shout out two people. Oh, let me tell you, if you've never had a seven sayings, if you never look it up, it's basically seven preachers for 10 minutes get each a, a saying. And they it is some of the most creative, inspiring, edifying preaching you'll ever um, hear. Uh, the legend herself, Vashti McKenzie, was absolutely, I mean, probably the best. And, and you have to understand, I've been watching these for like years and years since I was a kid. I've just always watched these. I've loved these. This was one of the most um, holistic, creative messages I've ever heard, and it was on uh, Jesus's words, uh, It Is Finished, mm. and it was on Wheeler Avenue Baptist Church, and the title of her message was Until, so I actually commend it to you. Uh, take 10, 15 minutes and, and watch that. It's it's mind-blowing. And then, um, of course, I have to shout out uh, the Reverend Dr. Charlie Dates. yes. Um, he, (laughs) he preached on my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? And I don't want to ruin it, but it's the most creative, probably the most creative mini sermon I've ever heard. Um, so yeah, he's on a new birth missionary Baptist church, um, yeah. So I commend those to you. So that's my, that's my bless. That's, I know it's a nerd thing because I'm a preacher, but <laughs> no, <we're, laughs> I was, I was truly blessed by
2: it. Yeah, no, we're big fans of Charlie Dates on the podcast yeah. and Vastra McKenzie. Yeah, she came and, and spoke at, at Baylor in the pre-COVID times and it was, sisters got it. So I'm, I'm oh excited. My <laughs>
1: yes, yes. And hers was all women as well. So it was just, it was beautiful. Um, to see and hear. So my mess is um, the NCAA. And here's why my mess is the NCAA. You know, you had this whole weight room situation where the women were getting, you know, Mm -hmm. a very minimal use of, of the weight room and then the men were getting a whole, you know, Planet Fitness in this hotel ballroom. (laughs) yeah so that's number one because i think the comments surrounding that uh proved the point of misogyny and misogynoir like i think that really that was a very uncomfortable conversation to watch play out and furthermore Mm -hmm. i think even beyond that you know i'm watching all these wonderful college athletes and they're not getting paid y'all like i mean it's just at the end of the day you just kind of look and you're like this is kind of an entertaining scam you know this is this is amazing basketball, mm-hmm. and none of my dollars that come as a result of me watching all these games is actually going to reach the players who are playing their hearts out while we zoom in on them as they cry and and you know hurt themselves and and get treatment on the on the sidelines, then come back in and and fight and experience the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat, and they ain't getting paid. I don't know. That's a. I'm I'm kind of done with that one, especially on the women's side, because I think for the for the men. There's like different avenues and ways in which the men benefit from this, but on the women's side, they're not getting the same ratings because we're not drawing enough attention to the skill that they have and just the amazing basketball that they're playing. And so the NCAA has got to be my mess. And NCAA is a mess. Pay the players, pay the athletes, pay all of them. All your excuses yes. are nonsense. I aff-
2: yes, we affirm just get that. It done. Yes, so, pay yeah.
0: the athletes. <laughs> Faith. All right. Well, you know, my bless. As you all know. You know, my way to decompress from the world is to either watch reality <laughs> TV. <laughs> Catherine's laughing because, you know. Uh-oh. Ma- Married at First Sight is one of my favorites. Any any like, any like of these, like, love TV shows, I, I find great entertainment in them. But there is one show that I really like that's coming back that is not reality TV. Handmaid's Tale. Handmaid's oh. Tale is coming back um, at the end of the month. And I... I think it took it took a few episodes for me to get into it at first, like when it first started. But then I started watching it. And, you know, thank God we have for now a new administration. But let me just tell you, when I was watching this before, <laughs> I was like, I have got to get to Canada immediately. <laughs> um, because what I'm not going to do is be a handmaid. Um but I'm just excited to have a good drama come back um, come back on that is intriguing and has a good storyline. So that's what I'm excited about. Also, I am excited that on the last episode of um, Married at First Sight, Pastor Cal really gave it to Chris because he is just... Not great at all. If you don't know, I mean, if you haven't gotten into Married at First Sight, this... Okay, Tyler, listen. I I was getting ready to ask.
1: Do I need to... Is this a a thing? I mean,
0: this season is a little bit of a train wreck. Our last episode, we talked about this particular couple, Chris and Paige. And Chris, who uses, you know... Manipulation, spiritual manipulation, and abuse um, to engage Paige, the girl that he gets married at first sight to, um, but decides he is, you know, unattracted to her. And therefore, he, throughout the show, treats her terribly. That's all I'm going to say. You know, feel Whoa. free to go back and watch. But he definitely uses and abuses Paige through not only his words, but also sexual manipulation and spiritual manipulation. And because Paige is on her own spiritual journey, she has, in some unhealthy ways, seen his different behaviors and is like, I mean, if I trusted God to give me in this process, then I'm going to trust God to help sustain this marriage. And so this is what we're talking about, how it's celebrated from Black women to be long suffering, right? And so- um, He was confronted, but I am devastated for Paige because I know that this experience, you know, she has to get healed from it. She's going to need therapy and counseling so she can become the woman she needs to be. But it has definitely affected her psyche. And if it happened to any of us, it would. And so um, just to see black men do this, to see colorism at play once again for darker brown skinned women. Whew, anyways, it's a whole thing. I I could go into it more, but that's... <laughs> That's the summation
2: um, of that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> wow.
2: Well, we appreciate the pastor, the the pastor who's a spiritual advisor, finally dealing with Chris because his behavior has been egregious, and he has he comes from a family of pastors, and wow. also Terrible. to like, it just seems like there's a lot of enabling of his b- behavior, and so for you know the married at first sight pastor to finally be like, hey, you gotta like, no, <laughs> well, yeah. Wow. Yes,
0: he needed that. So thank, thank God, Pastor Cal par- finally spoke up. Um, here's my mess. So you know, I was on TikTok this week, and I was watching this girl do this remix, right, for some songs, and she was clearly not black, but you could tell she was a person of color, and she said the N word. Mm. <laughs> and I, I was like, I had to play it back, and I was like, wait a minute, yes, she did, right. She then responds to some comments and some people were like, no, she's not. It don't like, you know, it's a good mix, like dismissing it. Right. Because the mix that she just threw together as she's DJing is good. She then replies and says, you know, well, I'm Filipina. <laughs> uh, uh, so? Mm-hmm. And so this is my problem. People of color. This is why we got to be specific sometimes. We can't just be saying just people of color.
2: Mm. You,
0: if you are not black, please just stop. Okay, because this whole like excuse of like, I have maybe, you know, some sort of sense of proximity, some sort of marginalization. So now I have a claim to that word. And now I'm just going to use it and sing it casually, like there's no consequences. Not only that, um, because I know I'm pretty. And maybe I've dated some, you know, sort of black men and that gives me some claim to that word. I have seen that happen Mm. with women Mm -hmm. who are women of color who feel like because of their proximity to blackness and black men, that gives them a pass and an excuse to... Um, operate in white supremacy and to think that we're just going to let it go. Oof. No, it's not okay. Um, and so I don't like it. I just it needs to stop. It really just burned me up this week. And I was like, this is a mess that we need to have a yeah. family conversation about because this is not okay. And once again, we black women are holding the torch and holding people accountable to say, you cannot do this. And no, you cannot use your looks or any of these things to excuse the fact that you are doing something that is harmful to our community
2: yeah that was good yeah okay wow yes <laughs> yes
1: that is mess 100 we still dealing with this in 2021 i'm tired
2: Absolutely. Um, okay, so we're going to wrap up the show. Before we do that, I did want to say, as a bless to the family of Earl Simmons and DMX, passed away April 9th on Friday. Um, amazing rapper, um, fellow Christian lover of God. Um, we might p- play a little of his, you know, maybe the edited version <laughs> as a way of commemorating him. Um, but yeah, we just want, I wanted to say um, rest in peace to DMX and then prayers for his family as they're dealing with their loss um i want to say thank you again to tyler for joining us um for you guys for listening in remember if you value our work please share um, with your friends and family review the podcast on apple podcasts and join our patreon community we will see you next time bye y'all see you. Ya. If you love what you're hearing right now, give us a
0: review on iTunes. That helps more people to find us and find our podcast. So we would love if you shared your thoughts about the Melanated Faith podcast there and share it with your family and friends. And we will see you all next week.